We all get a chance to say what we think with the election just around the corner. Uh, One of the factors that is going to be uh, talked about a great deal is all of the promises being made by all of the parties, particularly the government, uh, literally running around the country, shoveling money off the back of a truck. How are we going to pay for all of this, especially given the size of the record debt we're already carrying? Well, we can tax the rich. That's you're going to hear a lot of that. The NDP all over it uh, and have been for years. And so are the liberals. Well, the folks at the Fraser Institute decided to take a look at this tax the rich stuff, and they did some homework on it and come up with a report called Measuring Progressivity in Canada's Tax System. And here's the first line. There's a common misconception in Canada that top income earners do not pay their share of taxes and that increasing taxes on this income group is an effective way to generate significant additional government revenue. And our guest, one of the co-authors of this report, is here to tell us more. The co-authors are Jake Fuss and Tegan Hill, both economists with the Fraser Institute. Tegan Hill joins us this morning from Calgary. Tegan, good to have you back on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. And this uh, measuring progressivity in Canada's tax system, you have a way at the Fraser Institute of taking really juicy subjects and, and putting incredibly drab headlines on them. <laughs> but the point is that and we're going to hear, we're already hearing a lot about this, Tegan, about tax the rich. It's the only way to address this monstrous deficit we're running up. So tell us what you and Jake found when you dove into the notion of taxing the rich. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of policymakers use the rhetoric that high-income earners are not paying their fair share yep. to suggest taxes should be raised on them. Um, but we in this study take a look at the numbers and they tell a very different story. So uh, let's talk about, let's dive into the numbers. First of all, uh, what percentage of Canadians on an annual basis, Tegan, pay no taxes? We don't have that specific figure in this report, but what we do do is we break down by quintile. So we divide um, Canadians into five income groups, okay, and then we measure the distribution of taxes that they're paying. And what we find is that the top 20% of income-earning families actually pay the vast majority of income taxes in the country. So they're paying nearly two-thirds of all federal and provincial income tax, mm. about 63% while they earn less than half of the country's total income, about 44%. They're actually the only income group in Canada that's paying a larger share of their taxes than the share of income that they earn. Um, The bottom 20%, just for example, pays 1% of all income taxes while earning 5.5% of total income. Okay, so this is now this is this is where the word progressivity comes mm-hmm. into both the report and a description of how we pay taxes in Canada. Can you take a moment, Tegan, and just dive into this word progressivity, please? Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. So the main reason for this, uh, as far as the personal income tax analysis that we do, is the progressive nature of our system, where individuals are taxed at higher rates both by the provinces and the federal government, on income that's above certain thresholds. Mm -hmm. Um, But we actually expand the analysis to include all taxes. So we're looking at sales taxes, payroll taxes, property taxes, and in fact, the top 20% of income earning families are still paying more than half, or 55%, of all of these while earning less than half of the income. Um, So again, I think this, this really speaks to that the fact that there's room for debate about the progressivity of our tax system or the structure of our tax system. 
But the notion that top income earners are not paying their fair share is simply not true. One of your uh, Fraser Institute colleagues, Philip Cross, wrote a piece in uh, the Financial Post a couple of days ago. The subject header was wealth tax wouldn't work the way Ottawa wants. And Mr. Cross interestingly quotes former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien in the article mm-hmm. who says, who once said, and I remember this, there's nothing more nervous than a million dollars. It moves very fast and it doesn't speak any language. True, mm-hmm. huh? Yeah, I, I love that quote. I think that was excellent. Um, it's, it's completely true. There are actually a ton of economic consequences um, and also financial consequences of raising income taxes on upper income earners. So um, I'm speaking to the fact that governments think that they're going to raise revenues by, um, by implementing a tax increase. It's really important to remember that people... Uh, respond to incentives. And so, especially high-income earners, they have this incentive and motive to reduce their taxable income by engaging in tax planning. Sure. Um, In a number of ways, they can shift some of their income. They can move it to another jurisdiction or put it into a small business. They can simply work less. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, governments frequently raise a lot less revenue than they they expect to. Even the PBO report because um, there's been a number of reports done recently that looks at, okay, how much could we raise with a one-time wealth tax or with a um, more consistent wealth tax, like the NDP is pitching. And in the report, they say, you know, these are very highly um, uncertain estimates because of that behavioral response. Right. And, uh, and and the other thing is just the raw math of it all, as you've already been describing it. You know, we're only 36 million people, maybe a few more. Uh, and of that, uh, how many millionaires and billionaires do we have? Not very many, relatively speaking. There just aren't that many rich people in the first place to make a difference. Even if you did a one a, a pass one-time wealth tax, the amount of money raised would be nowhere near... Uh, uh, what would be needed, and it would also really probably uh, turn off uh, that group to the point where they would start l- looking at even more ways to dodge mm-hmm. taxes and perhaps move money out of the country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we make these calls to raise taxes on high-income earners, we're typically overlooking, or, you know, individuals are frequently overlooking the economic consequences. So we've kind of um, touched on that. But just directly, they again, they reduce important incentives for economic activity as well. Mm. So entrepreneurship, investment, and innovation, because the financial benefit from engaging in those activities is reduced. So we need to be really careful not to use the tax system to penalize those important and productive activities that we need, especially coming out of a recession. Um, but again, we kind of discussed... It reduces Canada's tax competitiveness compared to other industrialized countries. And we're not in great standing right now. Right. So we would make the situation even worse. Uh, It would be less attractive to live and work in Canada and do business. And we really want to encourage entrepreneurship, business owners, highly skilled people to live here and work here. Because, again, they're really important for stimulating that economic growth that we want to see more of.
Mike Teagan is an economist with the Fraser Institute and co-author of a recent uh, Fraser Institute report about measuring progressivity in Canada's tax system. Of course, this is all uh, as we head to an election uh, of carrying, uh, Teagan, just an extraordinary amount of debt. The prime minister and members of his government traveling back and forth across the country, literally shoving money, shoveling money off the back of a truck. No, uh, no area will go unnoticed and unpromised as far as more financial commitments from the government. We are already, because of the uh, requirements that ours and every government in the world has been made to do with subsidizing and and stepping up when needed during the pandemic, and uh, that is perfectly understandable. But the amount of debt that that we're we're deeply mired in now doesn't seem to phase the government. They seem quite happy to take on uh, even more. And, And there's no one at this point talking about how are we going to pay for all of this, which we should be during the election. But I think, again, a country that has a rather long and sad history of voting for the party that promises the most free stuff, Tegan, this is pretty mm-hmm. par for the course, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, just I think the fact that the recent budget was over 700 pages and just packed full of promises um, is pretty illustrative of, of the points that you've made. And um, as we've been discussing, one thing that governments tend to do is call for um, increases on high income earners. Absolutely. Tax increases. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this report just shows that they're already paying a disproportionate share of taxes. Um, And as we've discussed, there's a lot of really worrying um, consequences for raising taxes on upper income earners further. Indeed. And, and I mentioned Sweden before we went to the break, because back in the 80s, uh, North America discovered Scandinavia and, you know, the socialist model of, of the day was Sweden. There was no greater place to be and to try to emulate as a society. And then, of course, they st- we started noting all the services and all the free this, that and the other thing that the average Swede was able to receive. And then we started paying attention to the amount of tax they pay, especially the upper income earners. And it got to the point where upper income earners just simply started to leave because because it they would it, it was it was almost counterproductive to continue working under that sort of tax regime. Are we headed in that direction here? Well, I think you raised first a very interesting point. Um, you referenced Philip Cross's study, and I know that he shows that there was actually about twelve European countries um, in recent years that introduced a wealth tax and then got rid of it. Right. Eight out of twelve have gotten rid of it because it wasn't effective. So I think it is worrying that this is a, you know, kind of platform for the election. Um, and I think it's also really important as far as the purpose of this paper to to just realize that when governments or the media even are making these statements around fairness, they need to be very clear on what they're referring to because it can be very misleading. It's really in the eye of the beholder and everyone's going to have their own opinion on that. So empirically, what we can do in this case is measure the proportionality and on a proportional basis, high-income earners are already paying more than their fair share of taxes. Um, so listeners can decide for themselves, but we, we do know, and there is you know, evidence to show that when you raise taxes on upper-income earners, as you say, they find ways to avoid those taxes, and it can lead a lot of them to just simply leave the country. Exactly. Now, one of those small European countries, in those European countries that tried this w- business of a wealth tax and within a year of implementing it, abandoned it, what was the, the consensus reason among those countries for turning around and walking away from the wealth tax? Well, there are a lot of different reasons, and I'll, pre- I'll pre- uh, premise this by saying I wasn't a part of that study. Well, I know but that. I yeah. did take a quick read, and 
Um, yeah, there are a number of, of reasons. A big one was that they were simply ineffective in raising tax revenue. So that links back to the point that we're discussing. You know, people find ways to avoid paying a new tax. Mm-hmm. They have the incentives and the motives to do so. Um, so governments often don't have that amount of money coming in that they expect. Um, it wasn't effective in reducing inequality. Uh, and also wealth is a really difficult thing to measure and tax. And a lot of really big assets get excluded from the wealth tax. So there's a huge range of issues around a wealth tax and why it's difficult to, whether it's a wealth tax or, um, you know, raising personal income tax rates, for example, on high income individuals. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more complicated than it can sometimes sound, especially when governments are using this as a platform where they're um, not clearly defining what they mean in in terms of fairness or exactly what those policies would look like. Yeah, but it sounds so compelling, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, we just need those tax cheats to pay their fair share. I mean, I mean, exactly. and who's going to argue with that? All these rich fat cats, nobody's paying any tax. Let's go. Let's go get those guys. You know, and it's it's very wonderful populist rhetoric. Who's going to argue with that kind of thing? Except when you start diving into the numbers, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't add up very quickly, does it? No, it doesn't. And as you've alluded to, our our deficit is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Yep. Our our debt load is massive. Um, so, you know, and again, I haven't, I can't speak empirically to this, but it does appear that there would need to be a lot more than a simple wealth tax um, on individuals to raise the amount of money. Even just looking at the PBO's estimates, I mean, that tax alone is simply not going to do enough. Um, and that means that, you know, broader based tax tax increases could be at hand here. So we need to keep that in mind um, when we're, we're talking about these massive numbers that we're seeing in, in the budget and how, how we're going to address it. You know, a wealth tax, it sounds great. It sounds like a catch-all. It's, it, it would absolutely not um, go a long way in reining in the deficit that we're facing right now. Yeah, it's something that we just need to keep in mind. The parliamentary budget officer actually did the math, and a right. one-time wealth tax is just not going to deliver the dough that those who say it would. Uh, it's just not there. There's just not that kind of money. Tegan, I'm fresh out of time, and I'm very grateful for yours once again. It's just super having you back on the show, and I commend your article at the FraserInstitute.org, Measuring Progressivity in Canada's Tax System co-authored by Tegan Hill and Jake Fuss. It's an interesting read. It doesn't sound like it's going to be one, but by gosh, it's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. Your headline people got to sharpen up there a little, Tegan, because it's really good material. And, and thank you again for sharing some of your weekend with us to draw it to our attention. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, two guests joining us now to talk about water, specifically groundwater. And according to one of our guests, who is a water well driller with over 50 years of experience, some 15,000 uh, British Columbia groundwater users are about to become criminals overnight come next March the 1st. It all has something to do with the uh, government and its desire to manage water use. And, well, they're not doing very well at it. And here to talk about it and, and explain what exactly is going on, uh, we have two guests. David Slade is that water well driller uh, for with 50 years' experience. Mr. Slade is also a past president of the BC Groundwater Association. David, good morning and welcome to the program. 
Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. And we're also joined by Mike Way, who is an engineer and a physical hydrologist, uh, also former head of the B.C. Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy. Mr. Way, Mike, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Uh, let's talk a little bit, David. First of all, your your uh, a, a headline grabbing uh, statement the other day about fifteen thousand potential criminals in British Columbia come the first of March simply because they have access to groundwater. So connect the dots, David, please. How could they become criminals? Come on now. <laughs> I know. I know it's dramatic, and and it was designed to be that way. I know it's an issue that has been sort of ignored since 2016 when the legislation first came in under the um, Water Sustainability Act. So what, what it means is that um, groundwater uh, under the act and under the terms of that act and the regulation, groundwater is now to be treated the same as surface water. And of course, we know that uh, fresh water is a, a renewable resource, generally speaking, mm-hmm. but it's not without its limits. And um, people pump surface water from lakes and rivers and creeks, and they do it with a license. And the government is able to monitor how much water is in those creeks and streams and lakes, and they're able to regulate it by licensing the available water. Right. Well, groundwater now is going to be treated the same for commercial and industrial users only, and that's an important distinction. So domestic users for regular homes and gardens and families and pets is not going to be licensed, and there's going to be no fees associated with that. Okay. But for commercial and industrial and agricultural users, licensing is now a fact of life, and most of the people, so they estimate at least 20,000 people in the province ought to have licenses for the groundwater they use for commercial purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, Only about 5,000 people have applied so far, and the deadline for application is March 1st, 2022, at which point... The regulation states that you must either stop using groundwater um, or if you use it, you'll be using it illegally. And so that's that's the connection there is that uh, according to the regulation in the act, March 1st, 2022 is when people who are using groundwater without a license, if commercially using groundwater without a license, who have not put their application in will become criminals. Technically criminals. Now, presumably there would be some kind of period of grace and warning and all of that sort of thing. They're not going to lower the boom necessarily overnight, but technically they would be in a position to do so. Now, Mike Way, back in 2016, when the Water Sustainability Act was proclaimed here in British Columbia, you were very much a player in the Ministry of the Environment and had a great deal of input into the Water Sustainability Act. Can you, first of all, Mike, please take a moment and talk to us about what we mean by groundwater? Sure. Groundwater is water that occurs under the ground, and um, we use it. We pump it out with wells. Um, Prior to 2016, um, groundwater users had a common law. They they accessed the water in the ground through common law. If you found it and you can pump it out, it's yours. Right. We were the only jurisdiction in Canada that basically did not regulate the use of groundwater, and all that changed in 2016 when the Water Sustainability Act came in. Now, uh, that common law access is no longer available, and people that have used groundwater for non-domestic use historically has until March of 2022 to convert that right into a statutory right, and uh, that is a grace period, is from 2016 to 
uh, March 2022 to convert that right to a statutory right. And if they don't do so, um, those businesses will lose their historic right. Interesting. Mike, What can you give us an example or two of businesses that would be taking advantage of groundwater and, and incorporating it in, in, into their business activities? They could be municipalities like City of Abbotsford, ah. City of Prince George. They could be oil and gas companies. They could be water bottlers. And they could be really small businesses like home businesses that rely on water for their business, RV parks, restaurants, um, roadside restaurants and pubs. Uh, anybody that uses water for their business for non-domestic use. Now, Mr. Slade said that uh, this has been a fact, and you've reiterated it as well, Mike, that uh, this this has, uh, has uh, come about, and we now we have a date, March 1st, by which businesses and those who rely on groundwater for commercial purposes need to have a license. And yet, I would probably be willing to bet the entire Fox family fortune this morning on the fact that no one listening to us has a clue, David, that such a thing, such a rule even exists. Well, you know, I guess I would like to take issue with that because I know there has there has been efforts on the part of government to get the word out. There has been uh, newspaper ads, there's been radio spots, there's been um, notices mailed out um, in agricultural magazines. There, there's all kinds of outreach that's taken. There's community community meetings and and presentations. So I would argue that um, most of the people who need to have a license or ought to have a license probably know ah. that they are making a conscious choice to to ignore it um, and i think there might be a number of reasons for that um, maybe they hope it's going to go away that maybe nobody will notice them um, that the um, that the regulation will get abandoned which i think would be a, a horrible mistake as i pointed out and mike pointed out groundwater is just fresh water that is below the surface sure and and if you don't measure it you can't manage it and and you can't measure it if you don't know who's using it and how much they're using and it's exactly the same as surface water you can't just let people throw a pump into a creek and pump all the water out to the detriment of the wildlife the um, the aquatic life and the people who might be using needing that water downstream and there's an intimate link between the surface water and the groundwater in that very often groundwater is what keeps the the creeks and the streams flowing sure. when we have long drought periods like we're having right now so so pumping groundwater can in fact impact surface water flows so it's it really is a very important issue and i think that uh, that you know you say there's going to be a grace period well there's been yeah. you know, four years of grace period now and i think at some point the boom is going to have to be lowered and that's why this is a it's an impending crisis um, and and it's just not getting the attention and the traction. And that's why I really appreciate people like you, media outlets that are actually starting to pick this up, because it is going to be a very big deal come March 1st. Mike Way, is, some yeah. of, is, is another reason for some of this foot dragging on the part of uh, operations and, and companies that should be already uh, have their license applications for groundwater use in, in the mill or in the process of being uh, approved, is one of the reasons to provoke a ticket or a fine or some kind of a government reaction to non-compliance in order to create a court case? Is this, could, could this be where it's headed? No. Well, first of all, I'd like to maybe counter David's comment that everybody knows. I mean, 
a brochure is one thing, and publishing a brochure once a year, uh, I mean, yeah, that, that that is news, I guess. But I think for me, when I go around the province on vacation or, or talk to people, uh, especially the small business owners, I'm not sure people realize the consequence or understand what it means to not apply for a license. Right, okay. So they, there's a lot of hearsay about a tax grab. Mm-hmm. They'll never find me. And so the seriousness of not applying, I don't think, has ever been really communicated by government adequately. Now, if you're a big oil company or a water bottler or you have public accountability, yeah, you're going to apply because you have resources, regulatory savvy, but for the RV park owner, for the roadside pub, for the private farmers, um, they don't have that necessarily have that regulatory savvy on their staff. Mm-hmm. They're mostly focused on, on building their business. And my concern is the larger entities with public accountability probably have applied, like the cities, the towns, the big companies. It's the small, vast majority of small businesses who don't understand this based on reading a brochure. Uh, they're not, they may not apply, and this is going to set up a, a business climate that is not very healthy in British Columbia, where small businesses will be forced after the deadline to basically continue their business uh, using the water without a license. Right. And I don't think that in a competitive world market that we want to set up our small businesses to run like this to compete with the world. And I just don't think the government has done a good enough job to communicate this to the small businesses, what it actually means. Uh, anyone who has a groundwater for purposes other than household use has to get a license and begin paying fees. The law applies to farms, both big and small, and to businesses of any size that draw water from a well. The government says just over 4,000 existing water users have applied for this license. They estimate that there are 20,000 users. Others say there could be twice that many. Our two guests this morning are here with us to talk about the importance of of these licenses. Mike Way is an engineer, a physical hydrologist, a former head of the BC Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy Group, still a consultant to the government. David Slade is the past president of the BC Groundwater Association and for 50 years a water well driller. Gentlemen, we were talking about the consequences that one could face for not complying, for not getting a license. And as I understand it, Mike, uh, it, it starts with the water gets turned off until you get the license. So whatever the business may be, it stops until the paperwork is done. Yes, by the law, if you don't apply to get your historic use recognized uh, come March 1st, you're required by the Act to stop diverting water. And if you decide to come to your senses and apply then, uh, you cannot use your water until the decision's made. Uh, until you get a license, if you can even get a license mm-hmm. in areas like the east coast of Vancouver Island or southern interior where it's pretty dry and there aren't a lot of water left to give out. Um, and that that decision could take years. It will potentially um, bury a business. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and David Slade, let's talk a little bit about the importance of, of all of this. And we've just gone, for example, a little bit of rain yesterday and some more overnight, but that's after 52 days without measurable precipitation. Here on the edge of the rainforest, for crying out loud, David, 52 days with no rain. And, and, and I mean, it's wonderful. Now we've got a little bit of dampness going on. But again, groundwater factors big time into drought situations, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that, that is where people turn when the creeks and the streams start to dry up. And, uh, and as climate change progresses and we see more summers like the one that we're experiencing right now, um, the, the need to manage and measure groundwater is going to become even more um, critical. I think that um, I would like to just address something that Mike touched on okay. about, the, about the level of you know, ignorance. And I, and I do agree that there's a lot of people who probably don't know, but I would argue that probably at least half of those licenses, those, those people who ought to have licenses, so around 15,000 is the wild number that mm-hmm. we're using yep. of, of users who ought to be applying for a license. I would say that probably at least half of them know. And so then you, you have to discuss or think about what is the reason for these people not doing it. And, and they, they make arguments like, oh, it's a cash grab for the government. Well, I've just done a little bit of back of envelope calculation here. And, and for agricultural use, irrigation use, the, the minimum fee would apply to most people. And so it's $50 a year is the minimum fee for agricultural use. That's 50,000 cubic meters. So $50 a year would get you 50,000 cubic meters a year. That's over 10 million gallons a year that you would be able to use legally for diverting groundwater for irrigation and agricultural purposes. For 50 bucks. For 50 bucks. That yeah. works out that works out to 2,600 US gallons for one penny. Mm-hmm. I mean it's practically free. It's sure. not this is not a cash grab on the part of government. This is just something. I mean $50 a year that's not going to cover the administration of licenses and, and monitoring and issuing invoices. I mean, really, it's just it's just trying to get a handle on the resource and be able to imagine it, manage it in a sustainable way moving forward. And and we need everybody on side for this. We need people to accept that this is a shared resource right. that needs to be managed or it's going to disappear. We're going to see the same kind of crises that we see in surface water, at, especially at periods like this when we have the long the long droughts. Exactly. Uh, we did open up the phone lines. John's uh, listening to all of this in Surrey, uh, commenting and, and, and thinking about things. John, did you have anything to add to the conversation? Good morning, by the way. Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, no, I, um, the conversation uh, brought to mind uh, several years back. Um, there was quite a controversy in the paper about um, selling groundwater to uh, was a U.S. bottling company, uh-huh. and I, I think it was up around Hope someplace, and, and it was saying that uh, we were giving it away to them, that they were paying next to nothing. And, and I'm wondering with the uh, climate change and things that are going on now, uh, are we uh, as Canadians doing anything to protect our water and not be giving it away to the U.S.? That's a fair and reasonable question. I think, Mike Way, you're probably in best uh, position to take that, too. What do you think? Well, uh, when the Water Sustainability Act was being developed, that was one of the big concerns was that bottlers were uh, paying very little. So yes. I think as part of the act, uh, the fees were raised. And But as David said, they're not super... Right, uh, right, not prohibitive. Costly. Yeah. But the, the, the main thing here is the fact that a water bottling company is applying uh, is 
signaling that they want to be legal. Mm-hmm. And so all the people that are concerned about the bottler taking the water away, until and unless they apply after March 1st, they will not have a right to object anymore. They need to secure their own water rights uh, and, and before uh, some of these uh, companies that come in afterwards take it. And, and that's really my concern is the private farmers, the small businesses, you have a chance to get your water right and secure that ahead of all these bottlers or whoever. Right. And you should do it to be a smart business. Right. And, and, and if the, uh, because the, uh, the downside of that is non-compliance can cause a business to be closed down because if your water supply is cut off and it's, it's an integral to the success of the business uh, and it will remain cut off until the license application is processed one way or the other, as you said, that can bury a business and who in especially small business wants the, to consider that prospect. And you will have an, uh, essentially given your water back to government to reallocate to somebody else. Indeed. Mike Way and David Slade, a very important conversation to have, gentlemen. I do appreciate the time you've given us uh, to, to discuss this and also to just put this issue on the table for a lot of people who are quite unaware of it and its importance to at least have a chance to understand what's going on and how uh, March 1st matters. Thank you both, Mike and David. Thank you, Sterling. Thank you. I really appreciate the attention to this issue. We're following the salmon story very closely on this program. We've spent a lot of airtime on it over the last several months. Greg Taylor was with us from Watershed Watch uh, last weekend describing more of the plan by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans to reduce commercial fishing activity on the west coast of Canada to the tune of 60%. There's a, a headline in the Victoria Times columnist that caught our attention the other day. Uh, commercial salmon fishers re from sweeping closures. Uh, with us this morning to talk about it is Christina Burridge. Christina represents the BC Seafood Alliance, which is a group of uh, processors and fishers. Christina is the executive director of the BC Seafood Alliance. Ms. Burridge, Christina, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's good to have you with us, Christina. This is terribly important stuff. And uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, as as I understand it, the Seafood Alliance is somewhat, okay, quite skeptical uh, about this plan by DFO to reduce commercial fisheries even more, given the fact that such reductions in the past haven't produced the desired increase in salmon population they were intended to do. Yes, I think that's a fair comment. I was going through uh, 30-odd years of reports on the salmon fishery, uh, going back to 1992, I guess. And uh, one of the striking things was that the only thing that we have done over that 30 years is to reduce commercial harvesting, taking us from a harvest rate of about 80%, uh, more or less the same as the Alaskans, down to 20% or less. And we haven't made the slightest bit of difference to the health of the resource. So then what has been the problem, Christina? If we've been reducing, consistently reducing and reducing and reducing over a 30-year span, specifically sounding very much like a program designed to increase salmon population, and nothing has happened. So what other factors are playing in here that uh, uh, see this not increasing salmon population? Well, I, th- I think it's 
obviously it's complicated, as I'm sure everyone who's been on your show has said. Indeed. And so there are many things. But I think it is fair to say that uh, over the last, until about 2018, um, salmon returns were pretty much in keeping with long-term averages going back to the 1950s. And um, generally speaking, we were getting the escapement. That is, we were putting enough fish on the grounds for uh, the population to reproduce and, in fact, grow. And so we were pretty stable for much of that time, although clearly there were ups and downs in there, but fairly stable. And then something else happened around about 2018, and that would appear to be what's going on out in the North Pacific because uh, the problems that we've seen over the last uh, three or four years have not just affected us. They've affected uh, Southeast Alaska just across the border Mm -hmm. in very, very similar ways. So, again, um, until maybe last year, we were putting the fish out to sea. Um, Our best estimates was that uh, they were making it out to the North Pacific, but something was happening there. And of course, if you think back about it, there was the famous blob. So we've seen uh, much, much warmer temperatures in the Gulf of Alaska where uh, our fish and Southeast Alaska's fish go, and that has almost certainly had a serious impact on returns. Right. So and just, uh, just by way of uh, sticking with the Alaska thing for a moment, yeah. because you, you, uh, you've talked about it a couple of times, comparatively speaking, is the Alaska fishery still in better shape than B.C., or is it in, in about the same condition as B.C.? Bristol Bay, which is further north, has had the, uh, the biggest return of sockeye ever this oh. year. But South Al- Southeast Alaska has not done much better than us. And the, the, the fish that return to Bristol Bay go to a different part of the North Pacific than the Gulf of Alaska. So that's a possible reason for that. One of the factors that is certainly pointed to by a, a number of players uh, on the field in this particular uh, game is fish farms and uh, the aquaculture industry and the uh, effects of penned salmon uh, and diseases that may or may not occur inside those pens and how the disease escapes and attaches itself to wild salmon returning either to spawn or more likely smolts little guys heading out yep. to to the sea for the first time to the best of your knowledge and you've been around here for a long time a Christina long time, yes. how, how much how much of a factor are fish farms do they get overplayed as a negative I think you ca- we, we can't discount fish farms as a factor. Uh, if, we, if we look back on the trajectory that I've just described over the last 30 years, there's no escaping the fact that uh, it's more or less simultaneous with uh, fish farming. Okay. And I think every fish harvester uh, who spends his or her life out on the water would believe that they are a factor. That said, I think there's many, many other things going on and one of those is simply the massive increase in population in um, Vancouver and Seattle. So we're just talking about what, just the urbanization of the West Coast and its impact on surrounding waters? Well, that would certainly be one of the factors when you think that, uh, you know, back in the 
uh, before the Second World War, Vancouver had still dozens and dozens of salmon-bearing streams, and now it just has a couple of kind of demonstration ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, how, what, uh, among your members in the BC yes. Seafood Alliance, Christina, what degree of confidence is there in this plan, this most recent twist to the plot from Bernadette Jordan and DFO to reduce commercial fishing on the BC coast by 60%. How much confidence among those directly affected is there that this will produce any kind of positive results? I would say that my members are skeptical, as am I, and I would agree with, you mentioned you had Greg Taylor. Mm -hmm. Yes, Greg was on last week. Yep. And I know Greg well, and he and I would certainly agree that uh, $647 million sounds like a lot of money, but you have to take into account DFO administration. And then we, according to the minister, we're going to buy out a big, big chunk of the salmon fleet. And both um, the United Fishermen and Allied Workers Union and I have estimated that at a cost of somewhere in the region of $275 million to do it fairly. And then you have conservation groups uh, all wanting, ha- rightly, have a habitat restoration project. Mm-hmm. And Greg and I are both of the view that the compensation money should be separate from that $647 million. And if we are basically going to see the end of the salmon fishery in BC, we should put all that money into trying to preserve the resource, uh, build it up, fix the many, many habitat issues, and hope for better times in the future. So because di- I think whether there's a commercial fishery or not, and I absolutely, of course, hope that there will be. Indeed. The resource is the most important thing here. Right. So the $647 million attached to this scheme to reduce uh, commercial fishing by 60%, uh, is, is that is the budget for this, uh, this whole British Columbia salmon project. And you're saying, no, the $647 million should be about the salmon. There should be a separate yes. budget for buying out fishermen's licenses so they, because they're not going to be allowed to fish anymore. You just can't literally throw them overboard into the ocean and say, they see ya. There has to be a fair uh, buyout package program. This has happened in the past, so there is there there is a, a template for all of this. But you're saying, Christina, whatever that cost is should be separate from the six hundred and forty-seven million set aside for the whole program. I suspect, even though it's a, probably a, a quite reasonable request, that you're not going to get it. That six forty-seven is it for the whole package. That is certainly what we've been told. Uh, We're certainly working with people like Greg at Watershed Watch to make the opposite case. And fingers crossed, we'll be successful. But again, I said skeptical and I remain skeptical. The Minister of Fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, announced in June that her department would be closing nearly 60% of the British Columbia commercial salmon fishery to deal with the precipitous decline of the salmon species in our part of the world. Here to talk about it with us this morning is Christina Burridge, the Executive Director of the BC Seafood Alliance. And Christina, uh, we did open the phone lines. Dave and Coquitlam is joining us as well. So Dave, uh, you have a thought to, to or a question to contribute to the conversation? Go ahead, and good morning. Good morning. Christina, do we have uh, no fishing zones in B.C.? 
Yes, we do. Um, we have uh, areas that are closed as marine protected areas, and then we have smaller ones like rockfish protection areas. So, yes, we have no fishing zones. Do, do you feel they're sufficient? Yes, I think they are at the moment. Actually, BC has currently uh, protected under international definitions about 25% of its coastline. In a few months' time, that will rise to 35%. And if you compare that, say, to Atlantic Canada, Atlantic Canada is at 9%. Mm. All right, Dave, anything else? Yeah, so I guess we just have to rely on salmon and enhancement programs. Well, certainly I think some of the $647 million is going to go to enhancement to hatcheries. And if that's done right, that can be a good thing. But one of the things that Fisheries and Oceans Canada has not done well is to evaluate evaluate the impact of enhanced fish on wild populations. So it is something that has to be done carefully. And if it's done right, and to a large extent Alaska has done it right, then that provides more fish for commercial fisheries, recreational fisheries, uh, food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. Just to follow up on Dave's question, and thank you for those excellent questions, Dave. Christina, is the sport fishery affected at all by this closure? No, and that would be a sole point with my members, uh, in part because uh, commercial fisheries... Uh, with a couple of exceptions, are really have have been really well managed in this province, and we have monitoring, um, we have DNA analysis to make sure we're not impacting stocks of concern, and uh, we have other fisheries that are open, including recreational fisheries that target those same stocks of concern, right? But which have. No monitoring. Yeah, indeed. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the 60% reduction in the commercial fleet. So who gets to be, uh, how does it work, Christina? Who, who gets bought out? Who, does, who, has, to, who has to bow out? And, and can a person refuse? So here is what I understand at the moment. Uh, the minister has talked about closing down 60% of commercial fisheries. Yes. And technically that's correct by numbers of open fisheries. In terms of landed volume, she's taking out about 80% of the landed volume. So all that has been said at the moment is that there will be a licensed retirement program okay. at fair market value. We do not know uh, what that will be and that it will be voluntary. Okay, so fair market value. One thing that I don't think a lot of uh, non-fishing people understand, Christina, is the cost of a license to commercially fish in British Columbia. Tell us about that, please. It's huge. Well, yes, it certainly can be. So, um, for instance, this year, um, most fishermen would have bought their uh, annual license to go fishing uh, before the minister's announcement. So if you... uh, were uh, a same boat skipper, you would have paid $8,000 for a license or two licenses, one for the South and one for the North, that you will basically be unable to use this year. And one of the things we would like to see from the minister is that uh, those harvesters who bought their licenses in good faith, expecting from the draft integrated management plan that they would be able to go fishing, Mm -hmm. they should get that money refunded. Sure. 
uh, and uh, the fair market value portion, you sounded even skeptical as you were saying the phrase on the radio. You sound a little leery about the uh, a bureaucrat's ability to recognize fair market value in the real world. I, I think we need to look at it a bit like... Um a severance package. So I think it has to be a little more than, say, what the government would pay at the moment if it were buying a license under what is essentially devalued conditions right. to transfer to indigenous people. So I think we have to look at a bit more than technical fair market value, and the process has to be fair so you don't have desperate people uh, offering to take to take the package for less and less. Well, and I suppose it depends a lot on the age of the, of the individuals involved. If you're if a, a younger person and you're maybe picking up the family business, dad had a license and now you've got the boat and all the rest of it, but, you know, you can pivot, to use a good pandemic word, uh, to something else. But if you're an older person, you've been fishing all your life, and all of a sudden you're out, um, then you're done. Uh, there's not a lot of pivot room left. There's very little room, and that's part of the problem. Fishermen do tend to be older rather than younger. That's not true across the board, of course. Right. But uh, it does mean the end for them, for sure, of a, of a life and a lifestyle. And there's also a bit of a disconnect that Greg Taylor talked about, and I'd be interested in your take on this, between the declaration of uh, specifics by the minister in Ottawa and the implementation of said specifics by the department personnel locally here on the West Coast. There appears to be some rather dramatic and huge disconnects. Yes, that was one of the striking things about it. And I think one of the troubling things for me is that Harvesters and uh, conservation groups and indigenous organizations went through the uh, arduous process of coming up with a draft integrated fisheries management plan Mm -hmm. that met the needs of DFO science and management locally and took into account stocks of concern. And then you have a secret Pacific Salmon Strategic Initiative process that goes over and above that, which was presumably done in, largely done in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, there, there begins the disconnect, right? Yes. So a totally non-transparent, non-engagement process uh, to come up with this. So, again, you used the word skeptical, I think, at the beginning of our conversation. I did indeed. Skeptical is what we feel. Indeed. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time this morning, Christina. This is a very important matter, and not just because of its historical importance as the as one of the pillars of the B.C. economy, one of the reasons we're still here today with mining and forestry and the fishery. And the fishery may not be what it once was, but it still matters in a huge way to the future of British Columbia. And we're grateful for your time and giving us your insight and your take on the plans by Ottawa. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate the interest you've shown in it. And here we are in the Arts Corner, wrapping up the Sunday show, joined from Chicago by Christopher Shire Johnson, who is the director and producer of Pageant, a musical comedy beauty contest, coming soon to the K Meek Center in West Vancouver. Christopher, good morning and welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Now, you co- th- this show has been performed in Vancouver before a few years ago. Yes, Christopher? 
It was back in 2018 at the um, Blake Snyder Theater at Ghost Studios. We um, we had a, a limited run and it did extremely well. And then, of course, we came to the end of the run, and wouldn't you know it? That's when everybody wanted to come out to see it. Right, of course. And then, so you scheduled a rerun for the next theater season, and well, we, that, that turned out did, to be pandemic did, time, I would, right? I would say that it was thanks to Donna Allison. Um, who was a friend of the choreographer, Ken Overby, who uh, had seen the show uh, with her group, uh, Penny Mitchell. And it was their enthusiasm and their connection uh, and their introduction to Rob Glore, the artistic director of the K-Meek Center, that allowed us to move to what was going to be a live performance back in April. Um, and then, of course, as you know, everything shut down. Yeah. So. Um, uh, we're we're thinking this is in loving memory of Donna Allison, this, this current streaming production. Indeed. So now what you've done here is you've taken a professional uh, video, uh, audio recording crew in, and you've recorded Pageant, a musical comedy beauty contest, for specifically this K-Meek Center event, correct? Yes, that is correct. Basically, it's not a film, and it's not a television series. It's basically live theater that has been video recorded to give you a taste of what this show will be like uh, when we get to go live again. And ah, in person. Well, but it's the show itself. I mean, the title just screams at you, Christopher pageant, a musical comedy beauty <laughs> it, it, it contest. Does scream. It does scream. It does scream for sure. Um, yes. Pageant is a musical comedy beauty contest. And it's fun for the whole family. Um, uh, like any other beauty contest, there is, there's, swimsuit there is evening gown there is talent there is uh, beauty crisis counseling calls there is spokesmodel spots all to win the um all to be the winner that night and the great thing about this show that when it's live um and in person with an audience with a live audience there is a potential new winner every night because we call uh judges five judges from the audience every night so new judges possibly new winners Ah, so it's interactive then, and which makes it even more fun to be a part of. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, what we've tried to give the interactive feel for this streaming event, you'll get a little bit of that. Um, we had to sort of pay homage to the, the script and how it works. Um, but again, keeping in mind that our audience is, is virtual um, and online watching it. Uh, we know you're there. Thank you for coming out to to click on uh, your link and to see it, but um, you're going to get a feeling for what would have been, you know, the live interactive, but it's not obviously exactly live. Is it, is it the full length production of the show though? It is. It is. It runs just, um, just under 90 minutes. So um, having been teaching a bit on zoom and taking classes on zoom, um, it, it, the the time uh, that we're asking people to sort of stay, you know, focused on, is just about uh, an hour and 20 minutes. Ah, okay. And now when will this be shown? And how does one go about getting access to it, Christopher? Well, you have to go to the K-Meek uh, website and uh, click on their summer uh, streaming series. And you'll see that we're uh, streaming on uh, August uh, of this month, August 11th, 18th, and the 25th. And basically, it'll lead you through all the steps to take. Um, I had to instruct some of my, uh, my family members, my aunts, my, my older sisters uh, to go through. There's a, lot of, there's a process of clicking, and then there's a process of uh, having to register to buy a ticket. But it's very, very simple. 
and um, and they'll send you an email once your purchase is made, and the email will have a password protected link okay. for you to have because this it's under it's got to be understood that while we can announce and advertise and bring people to see this, um, it's very important that uh, it's it's not necessarily. Um, the the con the, the arrangement with Concord Theatricals, who we have the rights with this show, uh-huh. um, it's important that there is this password protected link, so of that the people who buy, the people coming from their email, are the ones who are actually seeing the streaming. Christopher, uh, it's September seventh is the official date in British Columbia for Phase Four of the lifting or removal of restrictions related to COVID. Uh, that is a big day for a lot of businesses around the Huge province. Day. So, yeah. uh, as far as you've alluded to this a couple of times already, as far as pageant, a musical comedy beauty contest being performed live once again in Vancouver, is it possible later this theatrical season it could happen? I'm going to say I, I really hope so. I really, really hope so. I mean, it is in really uh, interesting and wonderful timing that we are giving you for the last year and a half of what most theaters were trying to do um, to transition into into this virtual online sure, yeah. world. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we can bring you this show with coming back in the theater just around the corner, it's very, very exciting. Um, and yes, hopefully um, the next time uh, anybody sees this show, it will be live. Um, that's obviously something we have to work out with uh, Rob Glor, the, the artistic director of K-Meek and, and others. But um, that, is, that is the intention. Excellent. Um, so we're going to best we'll hold our, cross our fingers and toes and, and hope moving forward that that's exactly what will happen. Well, we'll keep ours crossed too, Christopher. Uh, kmeek.com, Thanks, friends, for, uh, for tickets for Pageant, a musical comedy beauty contest. And oh, it's pretty darn different. Christopher Shiler Johnson, thank you so much for taking time out of your summer vacation in Chicago to be with us here in Vancouver. We hope to see you and the show live soon. Thank you so much, darling. I appreciate it. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.